0: Today is the 15th and final study in 2 Corinthians. I'm not sure if the uh, applause there is for finishing it or for the studies themselves. Actually, we're going to be giving out certificates of endurance at the end of the service for those who have endured this long journey. And uh, well done to all of those who've uh, been here all the way through and have uh, caught the teaching right from the very beginning, and if you've not been around to listen here to on podcasts, well done for that. Um, right at the start of this series, uh, quite a long time ago now, we showed you an excellent um, YouTube video by The Bible Project on, on the, the, uh, an overview of this letter. And uh, actually, looking back to the showing of that video, I remember some of you glazing over. And I think that possibly that for some of you who had not delved in to 2 Corinthians ever before, some of you might not have ever read it. It was perhaps just a little bit too much information in one sitting. But I hope, I hope that you're not in the same place today. After three and a half months of teaching, about ten hours of teaching, um, so we're going to watch it again. And we're going to recap the, the journey that we've been on these last three and a half months. And uh, for those who are listening to this in on podcast, uh, click onto the hyperlink on our life group notes or go onto Google and type Bible Project 2 Corinthians. Sit back. Weeks here. Okay, we're going to have a look at our passage today and Brian's going to come and read to us um, from... Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, get your Bibles out, verse 14 through to the end. Thank you.
1: Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test. But so that you will do what is right. Even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth. But only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak. But you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian, for reading that. And I'm sure that as uh, Brian was reading that, some of you were saying, I wonder what on earth he's going to say on that passage this morning, let let you into a secret. For most of this week, I was asking, I wonder what Steve is going to get from that passage this week. So um, it's an interesting passage. I'm sure that's a euphemism for something else. The series has been challenging for a number of reasons, essentially in three ways. Um, It's been challenging in understanding relevance and obedience. Let me just uh, speak about these in way, way of opening this morning. It's been a challenge in the sense of understanding. Throughout this series, we've been asking, what did Paul mean by saying that? How does this paragraph here link to that paragraph there. And on one occasion we found out that Paul, after five chapters, came back to the point that he was at. So we can be forgiven for not always following his train of thought. Over the weeks we've been asking what was going on in the Corinthian church in order for Paul to write the things that he wrote. And uh, I've reminded you on a number of occasions that reading Paul or for that matter, any New Testament letter, is a little bit like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. And the best that we can do on occasions is take a best guess, a calculated guess at maybe what is happening in the church based on the information that Paul is giving us as he is writing to the church. So there's been a challenge of understanding. There's also been a challenge of relevance. Uh, Dan and I have found this series quite challenging indeed. And um, First of all, we needed to understand what Paul was saying and why he was saying it, but that was only stage one. We then needed to ask ourselves, okay, we can understand this in his historical uh, uh, setting 2,000 years ago in Corinth, but what on earth does it mean for us today? What's the relevance? And sometimes that was obvious to us. And sometimes it was far from obvious. But then there's the challenge of obedience. You see, it's one thing to understand the scriptures, what Paul is uh, writing about and why he's writing uh, about it in, in the context of historical Corinth. It's another thing then to take that writing and know how to apply it to our lives today, but we're still not done because it's possible to understand the Bible, where it's possible to understand its relevance and application for our lives today, but still not do anything about it. And that's what I call the challenge of obedience. You know, didn't Jesus say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And on another occasion, he said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Okay. So we're in this last section now of of 2 Corinthians. And in this section, Paul is portraying himself as as a loving parent who unselfishly loves his spiritual children in Corinth. And his emphasis is that he is not going to take anything from them, but rather he is giving to them, that he's not tricking them in any way. He's not going to take advantage of them in any way. And that was an accusation that some of them thought that he was only out to line his own pockets, but his desire was to give to them and not take from them. And then he says in, in the reading that Brian brought to us, that children don't provide for their parents, but parents provide for their children. And that he would gladly have given himself and all that he has for these spiritual children in the city of Corinth. Now, that reminds me of a very old story that uh, I read some time ago, and you probably know it as well, of a mother who went down to breakfast one morning, and she found a bill that her son had left at the breakfast table. He had written this, Mowing the lawn... £2. Drying the dishes, one pounds fifty. Raking the leaves, £3. Cleaning the, f- cleaning the car, £4. Total, £10.50. You owe me. The mother didn't say anything but went on her business and the boy came home from school for lunch that day. He found another bill beside the one that he had written on that same table and it said, ironing clothes, free of charge. Mending socks, free of charge. Cooking meals, free of charge. Bandaging cuts, free of charge. Baking cakes, free of charge. With all my love, mother. Now you see, the normal response of a child to their parents' love and care is to love them back. However, this wasn't happening to Paul in Corinth. Uh, He says in verse 15... So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. And then he asks them, If, you lo- if I love you more, will you love me less? And that was happening, really, in Corinth at that time. Now, I, I know that many parents have experienced the hurt and the emotional trauma of children going off the rails. And it's uh, incredibly painful. And over the years, I have sat with and talked with and prayed with and sometimes cried with some parents who were just brokenhearted due to their children rebelling against them as parents. And as parents, they had high hopes for their kids, all parents do. At their birth, they welcomed them into this world with great joy, with anticipation that they would actually do something with their lives Anticipation that they, of the people that they would become. And throughout their lives, those parents tended their children's needs. They have continued to shower them with love and affection and prayed for them, instructed them wisely. But for some parents, they have never had that love reciprocated by their children. And that was something of Paul's experience. Paul was the spiritual father... Of these uh, Corinthians and he loves them he loves them with a selfless unqualified unconditional love it's not a love that has anything to at all to do with the way that they treat him and Paul isn't going to stop loving them if they don't love Paul in return he loved them deeply he loved them sacrificially but as we can see from uh, this letter particularly his love was very much of a tough love you know you didn't really mess with Paul And uh, we can see that from some of the things that he's written to this church in Corinth, um, he's already been accused that his letters were weighty and forceful, demanding letters. But behind all of his tough talk on times, he had their best interests at heart. In fact, in verse uh, 19, he writes, And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Everything we do is for your strengthening. You see, Paul's desire for the Corinthians, even though he's a bit harsh on times, is that they would experience the love of Christ more and more. And that they would flourish spiritually. And that they would become mature as followers of Christ. And we can really see his pastor's heart here. He didn't mind, on occasions, being misunderstood himself or being vilified by people. That wasn't as important to him as him fulfilling what God had called him to do and to bring these Corinthian Christians to a place of maturity. You see, good parents try to prevent their children from mixing with the wrong crowd. Yeah. And I remember Julie and I tried to prevent our oldest son, David, from mixing with the wrong crowd. You know, the kids that we thought were going to have a negative influence on him. That was a little bit of an eye-opener for us to discover that other parents had the same reaction to their kids mixing with our David. (laughs) They thought he was the wrong crowd. And the truth was that we didn't know half of what he got up to. I tell you what, some of you guys who, who taught in Sunday school back there, my word, you deserved a medal, as do all of our children's workers. You see, having the wrong kinds of friends, particularly in teenage years, can undo that godly instruction that your child has received in their formative years. And that's precisely what was happening to Paul's spiritual Children in Corinth, they started mixing with the wrong crowd. They were mixing with these false teachers and these super apostles who were leading them astray and enticing them away from the, the godly instruction that Paul had given them in the first place. But Paul continued to love them so we 're coming close now to the end of the letter, not close to the end of the sermon i 'm afraid, but Paul has now said to them just about. Everything that he could possibly say over these 13 chapters. He has spoken of his love for them. He has argued his case like an experienced barrister. He's encouraged them. He's corrected them. He's rebuked them. He's cajoled them. And now we come to chapter 13, verse 5. And he challenges them. Actually, he throws the ball back into their court. And this is what he writes Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So what's Paul saying here? It appears that he is saying to the Corinthians, you have challenged me over my credentials as an apostle. You've questioned my motives. You've been demanding proof that I am speaking for Christ. Now let me challenge you to examine yourselves. Are you true Christians at all? You've questioned me, but what's in your own hearts here? 30 years ago this week, um, I became a pastor for the very first time. 30 years ago, my word, those, those years have gone very quickly. And during those years, I have witnessed... A few people who were very condemning of others and yet were guilty of even greater sins themselves. I remember one person, uh, that will be nameless, you won't know this person, um, uh, who who acted as a self-appointed moral crusader. And this person just loved looking at the deficiencies in other people. And he always seemed to be on some crusade for this or that or the other. And this person made life actually quite difficult for me and felt on one occasion the need to report me to my international headquarters because of my grave inadequacies as a pastor. And he told this to anyone who would listen. In fact, if I was only guilty of 10% of what this person accused me of, I would not be fit to be a pastor. And yet in time, it was discovered that this particular person had many skeletons in his own closet and was guilty of some terribly immoral deeds. You see, the one way that some people attempt to make themselves look better or holier is actually by condemning other people. And sometimes we can be so quick in judging others and yet so slow in evaluating our own lives. So what Paul does here is that he throws the focus back on the Corinthians themselves. They were questioning his authority as an apostle. They were accusing him of insincere motives. They were accusing him of even siphoning off some of this gift that he was supposed to be taking to these impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul's response to all of that was, Examine yourselves. Take your eyes off me for a moment and look at yourselves. I imagine if Jesus had been there, Jesus would probably have said, don't try and take the splinter out of my eye and t- take the log out of your own eye. Take that out first. And Paul is saying here, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. It was time for a spiritual checkup. You see, Paul was really concerned about these Corinthian Christians. They weren't living the kind of life that was bringing honour to Jesus, they weren't living a, a life as transformed followers of Jesus. And the way that they were acting, it demonstrated that they not really fundamentally understood who Jesus was. And there are thousands of people today up and down our land who will be found in church buildings. They might be singing their praises to God. They may be listening to sermons. They may be praying prayers, but yet they are not true Christians. Christians. You see, a Christian isn't a person who merely attends a church building. I think that many of us know that. Billy Graham, the evangelist, once said, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. And Neither is a true Christian to be defined as a person who lives according to a certain moral standard or merely someone who reads his or her Bible and prays. And Paul tells us in this verse that we have up on screen what a true Christian is. Examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? A true Christian, says Paul, is someone in whom Christ dwells. And a person in whom Christ dwells will have certain inescapable evidence of the authenticity of their faith. That person will always be aware that a fundamental change has taken place in their lives. That they are truly and permanently different because Christ has come to live inside of them. And Paul, in his many other letters in the New Testament, speaks of some of these changes That come about by Christ, by the power of his spirit, coming to live inside of them. First of all, he speaks of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8 verse 9. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to to Christ. And then a few verses further on in verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, the Holy Spirit, the moment we entrusted our lives to Jesus, came to live within us as God's empowering presence, enabling us and empowering us to live a life which is honoring to God. It's a life that we could never live in our own strength. It's not by some kind of you know, grit and determination. But we could never live that life which is honouring to God in our own strength. And Paul tells us that the spirit who comes to live within us also brings an affirmation, uh, a confirmation, if you like, that we are God's children, that we belong to him. I know that we love singing that song here. I am no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. And we're going to be singing that a little bit later. And the words of that song that we sing are based on uh, a verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Where Paul writes, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, what's all of that? What's that about? In other words, what Paul is saying there is that no longer do we think of God as a judge who is out to condemn us. Rather, we see God as a father, a loving father, who is out to pour his love upon us. That he is the father of the prodigal son with arms open wide who comes running to us. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, many of you know that the the term Abba is an Aramaic word, which is quite similar to the word Daddy. Uh, It's it's a term of endearment. It's a term of accessibility. It's, It's not childish in any way. And that's an awesome thought, isn't it? You know, that we, and we know who we are, that we can come before the God who has created all things, who has flung stars into space, who has created the universe, and we can come and say, Dad, wow. And we can do that because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Well, there's an inner, there is an inner witness of the Holy Spirit. What else do we find? We find an inner Peace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that sense of conflict that we might have had with God previously has come to an end. That we have become conscious that our sin no longer troubles God. Wow. Wow. I love what David writes in the Psalms. His experience is the experience of many people I know. In Psalm 32, this is what he writes. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. We all know David's story, don't we? David was a man who committed adultery and then he went out to murder the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with. And, you know, basically he was a good man. Not by those acts he wasn't, but he was basically okay. And those terrible, terrible acts weighed heavily upon him. And he was full of guilt, full of self-condemnation. Imagine how you would feel Well, let's see how David felt by putting the next verses of that psalm up. When he says, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength was evaporated like water in the summer heat. And over the years I've spoken to many people who are living their lives under this sense of guilt. And they express their guilt in terms of physical effects upon them. I imagine if David was writing to a, an audience today, he would write and say something like, Your life is just like wading through treacle. I've got no peace. Or maybe words to that effect. And then he goes on to say, Finally, I confess my sins to you and stop trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. That's the experience that he had when he confessed his guilt to the Lord. David was free. His guilt was gone. Jesus, on one occasion, speaking of himself, said, If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Oh, you know that one. Good. Good. And you see, I've spoken to many people over the years whose lives have just been strangled and choked because of their guilt, perhaps because of stuff that they have done, stuff that they've been involved with in the past. They just can't seem to free themselves from it. Perhaps there's no day that goes by when they don't reflect upon their mistakes and wrongdoings. And they can relate well to what David has written here. My body just seemed as if it was wasting away. I just groaned all day. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. I just want to say today, if this morning that is your story and you can relate to those words, that sense of guilt, that sense of heaviness, that sense of deep regret, the good news is this, that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, another thing that we will sense in our lives if Christ is living within us is that deep sense of destiny. The world will feel a different place, there will be a likeness in our spirit, there will be an awareness of God. Uh, I know I mentioned this story to you previously, and uh, And and it's about Jane, actually. Jane is uh, taking the kids on this morning. But when Jane first became a Christian, she was baptised. She told the story um, of uh, seeing the whole world differently. And one day she was down in Kingsbury Water Park and she was there and she fell out of a wheelchair. And uh, she fell into a puddle. And instead of getting irritable and cranky. That's a good word, isn't it? Cranky. She became aware of the the various insects in the puddle and she started praising God who had designed and created those the creepy crawlies and everything else you see very often we are given a new perspective we are given new desires we can see the world in a totally different way and those that have Christ living in them do that because of what Christ has done that very often they are surprised by joy They experience a peace which transcends all human understanding. They become aware of a new relationship that they have to God. And also their new identity as sons and daughters of God. As the old hymn says, that they have a strength, a new strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. And an assurance of God's unending, unconditional love through thick and through thin in this life and into eternity where God will eventually wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That deserves an amen, doesn't it? What else? There are new desires. You see, one mar- or some of the marks of a new Christian, someone who is born again, is that they have new desires. And for many people, it's a deep thirst for the Scriptures, a deep thirst to be fed They desire to know more and experience God through the scriptures. And that is something that I have witnessed in some of you who have come to faith recently or come back to faith through our Alpha courses. That the Holy Spirit is the one in our lives who creates that hunger, that thirst for the scriptures. For some it's a greater desire for prayer or the desire to tell others the good news of what Jesus has done for you. And you don't do it out of a sense of duty or obligation. But since your heart is so full of Jesus, you just want to share Jesus with absolutely everyone. Jesus said, Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And these are signs of Christ living in you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You see, if Christ is living in us, these inner changes will always produce outer changes as well. And one of the striking things about new Christians is that they invariably begin to manifest a totally different attitude to all sorts of things in their lives. For example, the attitude to others. In 1 John three fourteen, John writes, We know that we have passed from death to life. Well, how do we know that? Answer, because we love our brothers. And John says that the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ is an evidence that we have become spiritually alive that Christ is living in us. Maybe before we used to be people who were selfish, people who were full of ourselves, people who were the center of their own world. But by coming to Christ, we have become much more aware of other people around us, more aware of their needs. Their needs are important to us as our needs are. Before we might have been very harsh in our treatment of other people, but now we have become accepting and loving, even to people that we formerly despised. And you see, that's a work of God. You know, if you're looking for a work of God in your life, that is a work of God. That is proof. Sometimes it's the attitude to God's commands. Again, in 1 John 5, verses 3 and 4, John writes, This is is love for God. To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. In other words, what he is saying there is the proof that we love God, that comes when we actually obey what he has to tell us. And that the things that we obey are not arduous and burdensome or troublesome to us. In a sense, they're easy to obey. Because our heart is in love with him. I've known many people who have come to faith and they have a new attitude to sexual ethics. They might have once thought it okay to sleep around, but something has changed for them. No one has come up to them with a whole load of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations to say this is the way that you're to live your life. No. But something has changed deep down inside of them. They now recognize that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. For others, it's a matter that they they just can't tell lies anymore. Or gossip. Or steal from their employer. Or from the Inland Revenue when filling in their tax returns. Or asking for that cash payment so it doesn't need to go through the books. Examine yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So, what about us? Let's just sort of bring this home this morning. What about you? The proof of genuine faith is not whether you attend the Elim church, and you might have done so for many years. It's not that you have, in your own strength, tried to turn over a new leaf and got religious. Or that you sometimes read the Bible and pray. The real test is whether Jesus lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now forgive me for being very direct by asking this. Do you know the inner witness of the Holy Spirit? That sense of inner well-being, as the great old hymn once said, it is well, it is well with my soul. Do you know that? Do you know peace with God? That you view God no longer as a, a judge to be feared, one who desires condemnation, because that's the way many do. Do you see God now as a loving Father who has done everything possible for you, who has sent his Son into this world to lie upon a cross, for your sin. Do you know freedom from guilt? Or is that something that you're carrying around with you day by day? Do you know that real sense of destiny? An assurance and a hope that everything is well. And the reassurance that one day, even when you pass on from this world, That you will be in the presence of Jesus, the one that you love. Are you aware in yourself as you do this self-examination, this testing yourself? Are you aware that you have new desires, that your desires have changed? Before it was a matter of looking out for number one, looking out for yourself. You were the center of your own world. But those desires have changed and you can now look back on that person and say, that was the old me, that was the old man. Today I'm totally different. That person's dead. But I've come alive in Christ. I am a new creation. The old has gone and all things have become new. You see, the important thing for us to know this morning is that no one else can answer those questions for you. Paul says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves, it's personal. You can't do it for your husband or wife, your children or your parents, your siblings or your best friends. And I would say again to you this morning that if you sense that you fail Paul's test here, I would so love to be able to pray with you this morning for you to receive Christ, for you to know the assurance of his love in your life, for you to know the very things that we are talking about today. I would say, don't settle for an imitation of the real thing. Paul's question is very clever, I must say. Let's get our head around this for a moment, and then we, we will finish in two minutes, promise. Basically, he's asking them a very straightforward question in the way that perhaps some might say, what he's asking them is, are you saved? And the answers are very straightforward, yes or no. But if they're really saved, then they will know that Christ is living in them. The next question is the obvious one. Who then told you about Christ? Who explained to you how to get right with God? Who shared this message with you? and the answer, of course, is Paul, you did and if that's the case then how for a moment could these Corinthians entertain the idea that Paul was a false apostle when he was the one who led them into a real faith and he would say what are you saying? doesn't make sense at all that just about concludes us In verse 11, we find words that really reveal the heart of Paul. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these words. Be joyful. Grow to maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. Again, he shows his heart here. He wasn't like these false apostles only trying to make a name for themselves or only trying to get money out of the people that they were reaching out to. But Paul's concern is for the Corinthians, that they might become mature in their Christian faith. And he, he had a desire that God should be honoured. Greet each other with Christian love. In, in fact, in the New International Version it says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. I heard someone once say that the difference between a kiss and a holy kiss is about two minutes. (laughs) If you didn't get that, get somebody to explain it to you later, okay. All God's people here send you their greetings. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And Paul uses a wonderful Trinitarian statement here of Father, Son, and Spirit as a final blessing. And today, because we have been recipients of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to know the love of God. And we have also come to know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and works through us for his glory. Our Anglican friends Uh, very often say these last words um, in their services most weeks uh, as the grace, as they would call it. Well, I think that it's uh, actually a good thing, and I'd like us to become Anglicans just for a moment or two this morning. So when the worship band are coming back, would you all stand? And I would like us... And don't do this looking down at your toes. It's meant to be done by looking around and sharing this with one another that we will say the grace together. Shall we do that? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Stay standing. Thank you. We finished.